Welcome everyone to this episode of the Perceptive Podcast here on Game Wisdom, where we examine the art and science of games. We got a good cast for you this week. We're going to be discussing some of the thoughts about replayability in video games. What makes games that make us keep coming back to them? And when does a game just push us away no matter how many random or procedurally generated events are in there? And my guest tonight is from the YouTube channel Game Dev Seal to talk about uh, some of his thoughts on the topic as well. So please welcome Silvio Stana. Welcome, everyone. Hey, Silvio, it's great to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty awesome. I'm excited about this topic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's go. Great. So uh, before we get going, for people who haven't heard of you before, what is your channel like? My channel is mostly about documenting my whole journey through game development. Mm -hmm. So basically, I'm trying to show my whole process, all the things that I'm trying to go through, and what comes from it might help some other people that are interested in it. Great. Now, uh, it took us a little bit to get uh, connected. I know we have a pretty big time difference. I guess, where are you located? Romania. Oh, nice. I guess uh, one question I always like to ask when I have international guests on for these casts, how is the game dev scene in Romania? Well, to make a bit of a mental picture, to imagine it, in the biggest city called Bucharest, so we're in Europe, mm -hmm. we've got about three big studios. Hmm. Compared to, like, let's take one of the top ones. I've seen this top charts, which have the most companies in many cities. Canada, for example, in Montreal has about 30 studios. So compared to Canada, we've got about one-tenth of the studios. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely interesting about how the game industry has kind of spread throughout the world. I know I talked to other developers, I can't remember any of them writing all the top of my head, about kind of the state of things around. But it is always great to connect to people outside the United States. So it is really great to have you on tonight, Silvio. I'm excited. Let's oh. go. All right. So, uh, like I said, our main topic is going to be talking about replayability or variance in game design. We're going to try to keep things on the short end due to the time difference, but there's certainly a lot to discuss here, and I'm sure we will not be getting to it all on a uh, podcast tonight. But I guess I'll throw things over to you first. When you think about replayability in video games, what keeps you coming back to a title? I think the biggest thing is not necessarily variance as long as it keeps being challenging and it also rewards you properly for it. And there's multiple kinds of rewards for what it can give to you. So I'm going to give right off the bat one example that managed to hook me for a very long time. And that is Raymond Legends. Hmm. And how it did it is that it had these daily challenges after you complete a campaign with all the normal levels, and they had these daily and weekly challenges, and they, all of them, based on how well you performed, and they had multiple kinds of rounds. How fast you completed the round, and also how many coins you will collect, and then that will kind of establish a leaderboard of all the players that played, and you will be awarded trophies based on how well you performed compared to others. So, there were bronze, silver, gold, and platinum trophies, and each of them gives you points. And this sort of system, it's basically that if you're one in 100, the first 
1%, then you will be awarded a platinum trophy. And it goes down for from there. Mm-hmm. And then those things that are into points add up and your overall score, you can pretty easily in about one to maybe even three months become pretty much the top of the leaderboard. So it's also realistic to be one of the top players. And this game kept me playing for about six months, maybe even more. And I was always coming back to those daily challenges and always trying to get platinum. Mm-hmm. So the daily run concept has been very popular. And uh, Rayman Legends, was that the latest Rayman game or was that the one before that? There was one more before it, which is Rayman Origins. Mm-hmm. It's not all that different from it, but the Rayman Legends one is way better made for replayability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as I was saying, daily run modes are definitely an essential part for a lot of that kind of replayability. Now, I would argue that it would still be considered a form of variance because the game is still creating something new and different with each daily run. It's kind of why a lot of people have still are still playing games like Spelunky and The Buying of Isaac to this day. Oh yeah, definitely. Now that I'm remembering a bit more about it, because it was back then, I think one or two years ago, um, it also had the challenge of going as many meters as possible in distance before dying. Mm-hmm. And that was also a very nice kind of record that it could make. Mm-hmm. So the variance was basically based on how well it was proce- procedurally generated in levels. But it was very fun because at some point, certain parts will start to feel similar. And although it was varied, it was still challenging because you knew this time how to perform to make that segment better mm-hmm. of the level, even if it was procedurally generated. Mm-hmm. And the fact that similar to a game like Splunky, a lot of what made that work was the fact that it was built entirely on the player, uh, basically being the primary motivator for growing. Like, you don't see too many... Like, I guess here's a question for you, Silvio. For, like, pure roguelikes, you know, 100% role-playing, design, turn-based, that whole deal, do you think daily run concepts work as well as to keep people playing compared to something like Spelunky or Rayman? Well, roguelikes are made from the very beginning to be procedurally generated, like that's their default state. So it can definitely work. Also in terms of rewards, it can give you many sorts of coins and different kinds of currency and items. And as long as those things don't feel just like collectibles, but they actually feel useful to you and they help you maybe even a bit for the next challenges and not just only make you look good and build a profile, then that's going to be great as well. But there's something else that might work even better for roguelikes, Mm -hmm. if you're curious about it. Sure. All right. It's almost impossible that... Actually, let me not assume anything. Most of us probably already have heard of Rogue Legacy. Mm -hmm. All right. And the basic concept in it is that each time, each playthrough has a unique hero based on the traits that it gets. Some of them are short, some are tall, some are bulkier, some of them only use magic, some of them are almost blind and only see to the far side, some only see close, and many of those kinds of traits. And this thing was what made Rogue Legacy... Okay, cut that last word that was cut off. This is what made Rogue Legacy very nice to replay Mm -hmm. continuously. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with something like Rogue Legacy, I kind of got a little bit tired of that game, like, after, like, a long amount of playing. Like, this was, like, five to ten hours of going through that game, where I just felt like the runs just weren't changing enough. And That's right. That's right. That's one of the more interesting aspects. I want to get your thoughts on this, Silvio, because by the time this cast goes up, I probably will have had at least three to four different posts and videos about this. But one thing that I see from a lot of developers and even general consumers is that they feel that any random or procedurally generated events will create replayability. But I guess for my money and from the games I've played, it doesn't seem to be that easy. Like, there has to be more to it than just putting in uh, random or procedural generation. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. Honestly, I believe that replayability on its own starts to get repetitive. And in the case of Rogue Legacy, I can kind of relate with what you just said. After some point, it did become grindy because the same actions started being repeated, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Well, um... What I believe is that you don't only have to make procedurally generated things like the gameplay part only to make the game be replayable, but also rewards make and play a huge part in this whole aspect. Mm -hmm. Rogue Legacy didn't reward you because each new round you had to reset your character from the very beginning. And the only different thing was your player stats and unique quirks. Mm -hmm. But... Otherwise, the level was extremely similar, and even though it was procedurally generated, after a while you started to notice some patterns. And the only way to go through it was to either level up by as many of those things as possible, which is basically grinding, or finish the game and go a new game plus route, which is extremely way harder, which is basically still grinding. Mm-hmm. Yep. And... I'm glad we got on the topic of Rogue Legacy because it brings up one thing that we've talked about a lot on the Game Wisdom Discord channel, and that is when the game forces grinding in order to be it. And uh, to clarify what I mean by that is with many games like Rogue Legacy, uh, in Celebration of Violence, and other indie, uh, I'm not sure, actually I think there's probably a few mainstream, I'm sorry? MMORPGs. Yeah. Very often. And in these games, the abstraction at play is so extremely one-sided that you cannot beat these games on your first try. Even if you got, you know, the perfect combination of luck. If anyone who's played, like, Buying of Isaac, I'm talking, like, getting a brimstone with uh, the Book of Revelations and so on and so forth. You know, the absolute dream build. In these games... What ends up happening is that you are forced, as you just said to you, to grind whatever that persistence system is. It could be leveling up, it could be unlocking new pieces of gear, stuff like that. And what ends up happening is that you're not really playing the game for this run. You're kind of building yourself up for, you know, this run five to ten plays down the line when everything has been unlocked to the point where you can now feasibly beat the game. Hmm. Do you want my thoughts on this? Yeah. This is getting a bit more complicated to the core of the issue. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything that comes up in my mind right now. Do you have any thoughts? So it can get me going? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, the problem that I think with these kinds of games is that one of the major points about replayability, and especially for a roguelike or roguelike style game, is the fact that each run should kind of be its own self-contained element. And too many developers tend to put a focus or an emphasis on that persistence when the persistence system is more or less like a wrapper or it's the icing on the cake. It's why I think the buying of Isaac held up so well and why it continues to hold up as a great example of a roguelike and procedural generation. Even though the game features set items, everything else about the levels are shuffled or procedural. So... I can have a run in the buying of Isaac where I can win with the most overpowered build imaginable. And I've had them and people probably watch me do that. And now I've had runs where I will win or just barely lose by the skin of my teeth because of who knows what happened. But either way, it was still within my control. It wasn't the game basically forcing a grind on me. All right. I think I got the solution, although it will be kind of an understatement to place this whole replayability aspect on one single thing, but I think that emergent gameplay might be the solution. Mm. Certain actions and mechanics that you apply that end in different multiple results that you can't always predict. Mm-hmm. Yep, and emergent game design is definitely... We could certainly talk about games like The Buying of Isaac as an example of emergent gameplay, with how all the various items kind of intersect and combine with each other. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even a simple bullet bounce that you just shoot and then it goes off from a wall to a different one, even that starts to become less unpredictable and more interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, here is an interesting topic about replayability, and I want to get your thoughts on this. So far, over the course of the last 10-15 minutes or so, we've been talking about things from a roguelike perspective, with exception to something like Rayman Legends, although that was built on uh, procedurally generated levels of randomly generated ones, which is still a roguelike-ish kind of design. But, to switch gears for a second, what do you think about games that are built on... I'm not sure how I would describe this... Uh, let's say built more on an open-ended style. So some examples would be something like Don't Starve, uh, Factorio, even something like a Kerbal Space Program, where there isn't really a true like long-term carrot on the stick or you know some end boss to beat. It's just about you just playing these games over and over again and trying to get a different experience. So, for those kinds of games, like, where do you think the replayability lies? Hmm. Well, Don't Starve definitely didn't seem grindy. Mm -hmm. That's kind of for sure. Well, let's see. Well, Don't Starve, I think, did not have any experience or levels, right? No. I'm not exactly sure right now. You did did unlock new characters, but that wasn't a you know, focus on that run. Definitely. I believe that maybe the analytical part, whenever you start to introduce numbers and stats, you have you start to have a psychological inclination to want to improve those numbers. Mm-hmm. And of course, you will end up in the cycle of trying to just improve your numbers and become more and more OP. 
at the expense of actually enjoying the game. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. I think that's the main difference that Don't Starve also has. Also, well, it has many elements, many kinds of different enemies, and also many mechanics. I mean, just the fact that there is day and night introduces sort, sort, sort of the strategic thinking when you're thinking ahead. How will you plan ahead? How will you collect the wood ahead of time? How will you make the sticks, all the stuff to make your fireplace so that you don't die? How will you prepare for the actual winter? And having those, yeah, I think this is it also. You have those goals in the long term and they're well defined. You know what you have to do to survive. Well, maybe not on the first run, but already on the second run, you know what you're going to do so you can follow those and think about them and strategize so it doesn't get boring. And on the new playthrough, you can try new items and new things and it doesn't get boring. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, what you said regarding numbers, watching them go up or, of course, watching them go down. That's, of course, another major aspect of just about any ARPG, and ARPG design is inherently built to be highly replayable. Anyone who's been listening to me knows about the whole ARPG uh, gameplay loop trinity of fight monsters to get more powerful, or I'm sorry, fight monsters to get loot to get more powerful and rinse and repeat. And these are games where that scaling, and we even see this in the MMO genre, as long as you can keep reasonably raising those numbers and those values up, it can just keep going indefinitely. But I think for myself, and I'm wondering what you think about this for you, like, is there a point where that number chase stops working for you? As soon as you don't know what to chase anymore, you don't have any specific goals, or those goals don't matter enough to you. Mm -hmm. So how can we even give an example of this? Imagine one of those, well, imagine at any point in any game whatsoever in which you started to lose interest. I believe, or at least this is mostly for me, but maybe for other people as well. I believe that this happens because you don't have any more motivation to keep pursuing that goal. You start believing that it's worth it to grind some more or try this other thing because the goal and the end result, the reward is not worth it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's and, a loss of motivation. Yep, and I feel that with Diablo three, like I am, I will play a character all the way up to level seventy because there's always something new to unlock at each new at each level up. But once I get to seventy, it just kind of feels like what else? Where else is there to go? And I think that's also why MMOs have never really managed to hook me. For you, like uh, for you, Silvio, have you pl- gotten hooked on any MMOs in your time? Yeah, definitely. Same story as you. I got as long as things were still interesting and I was very often hit with new environments, new enemies, new items, levels, short upgrades, short term rewards. Even if it was level 10 or if it was level 50, it was the same story. As long as it kept it interesting, as long as I had to explore new stuff, new strategies, new skills or items, I kept being interested. Mm hmm. And I guess with if you did play Diablo three, like did you go all the way through like the torment levels, or did you stop once you kind of hit like I guess the apex of your power curve? I did not play that game. Okay, I played four story. <laughs> <laughs> all right, not a problem. I guess 
for myself, whenever I play games like Diablo or any kind of ARPG, it really comes down to, I guess, like, how is that character growing? And this goes back to what we were saying earlier with having these different runs or different variants in play. Because in any one of these titles, there always comes that point where your build kind of gets solidified. Whether it's due to the gear you find or simply due to whatever you level yourself up as. And at that point, you're kind of in it for the long haul. Have you ever seen or played Path of Exile? Mm, I have not. Path of Exile is a free-to-play ARPG. It's been out for several years now. It's very popular due to the fact that it is really built on long-term growth. The passive skill tree for that game is basically like four or five screens wide. That's how big it is. And Mm. it is designed around that, around basically you get the gear that you want, you get what skills you want, and then you just, you know, go down the skill tree designing whatever crazy build you want. And there's a lot of passive growth in that game. But once you've gotten whatever skills you want, you're not really changing what you're doing. It's more about that abstraction at play, whether it's making my weapons do more damage, let me have life leech, or some other crazy modifier. But once you get to that point, it doesn't feel like anything else is changing for your character. I've said this before. That just raising numbers without any kind of gameplay impact doesn't really do it for me. If I, you know, punch a guy for 10 million points of damage, or for 10, it's not really, you know, changing my end of it. I'm just still hitting the punch button. Alright, so first thing first, what changes this is how much impact you put in the animations of the punch, for example. At the initial levels, you can make a very small punch. There's almost no screen shank at all. And for that 10 million damage, you can change the effects to make it more impactful. And not only that, you said something about an excessive amount of menus in that Path of Exile game, right? Uh, just a very big uh, UI for the skill tree. All right. All right. I think that... Hmm... I'm going to take a more mainstream example, like World of Warcraft. And that game also has lots of menus in general on the UI. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't start with all of that clutter. It only starts with a couple, just a couple of skills, items, and everything else. And as you level up and get better at the game in general, you start to get more skills and more menus until you eventually get to the pro players who have almost all the screen occupied with all sorts of items and menus. And maybe that's another thing that you can do well to make this more interesting and replayable is to also make more options for the menus, more things to look at and multitask between. Mm -hmm. And as you say, as long as you can keep the impact of changing how these things work, even that can be simple enough to keep people hooked. Uh, Going back to Diablo, for instance... When you unlock the different uh, skill rooms or modifiers or skills, it changes the graphical effect on that skill, whether it turns green, blue, red, maybe it throws skulls at people, anything like that. 
as long as there's something changing, something to say that I've gone from A to B all the way to Z, that can be enough of a motivation. But I think even with that said, though, there is a limit to how far this can go. Have you played or seen The Division, Tom Clancy's The Division? The more titles you mentioned, the more I realize how very few games I've actually played. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's let me give you another fair. example. Then. I've... Let's, go, let's go to the basics. Let's mm-hmm. take a mobile clicker game, which is built on this replayability aspect. Mm-hmm. So it has that, all you have to do literally is to click. And we can see in those games exactly how big the impact of polished effects and graphics and changing numbers can really be. Because that's all they really have. They have a system of numbers that are, that are changing properly and advancing. So, And they still manage to keep me playing. Mm-hmm. At least for a couple of hours. Maybe even a day. Or they did in the past. Mm-hmm. And the clicker genre, I've said this before, they're just basically taking the progression model of any big game and removing all that extra fluff and aesthetics and even gameplay in that case. As you said, you're just clicking numbers to watch more numbers go up or to make other numbers go down. And again, I always say this, but as long as there's numbers in existence, that can be enough of a motivator to keep you playing. I know it's done for me. I've had to kind of quit that genre cold turkey or I would just spend like five, six hours a day watching these things go up and down. (laughs) Yeah. And those are also great opportunities to play a couple of ads as well to raise those numbers faster. Mm -hmm. Well, also for anyone who's watching, if there's anyone addicted to those clicker games, for most of them all, you can do a trick. If you want to quit them, you can just go to the time thing and go ahead by one day. And whenever you return, you'll have all that money in your account. In most games, this will actually work. And you will do this for a couple of hours, but you'll be at the end of the game. And you'll have progress through it fa- much faster and you'll be able to keep up faster. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let me check our time for a quick second. We are just about at 30 minutes in. I figure uh, let's go for like another like two or three minutes just to wrap things up. And then we'll call for the cast, if that works for you, Sylvia. All right. Now, like I said at the start, when it comes to replayability and variance in game design, this is not something that you can easily go over in 30 minutes, let alone an hour. I mean, if we had the time, I could just sit or stand here and talk for like the next two to three hours about this topic. And it's one that, like I said, it has become a major factor for a lot of video games, whether they are... AAA experiences going for that games-as-a-service or long-term model, or indie developers trying to make the next roguelike or roguelike-ish, or I'm sorry, roguelite, there's two different terms now for people, a game to play in the future. And I want to go back to one final point, because we didn't touch on this too much, but when it comes to that kind of long-term play, Something that's going to keep you coming back to it. Now, we've mentioned things from a numerical point of view, but what about from a gameplay point of view? What can a game add in terms of new content or new elements that keeps someone playing without just becoming like a jumbled mess 
of levels or game systems? Well, you were right about what you just said. We are definitely just scratching the surface. There's just so much depth to each one of these things that we've just mentioned in this whole podcast. Well, for the mechanics, we're getting more into game design, but the basic thing is that, well, remember those games in which there's a progression to how fast you learn the mechanics? Mm-hmm. Um, let's see for a jumping mechanic, you've got this random basic platformer game. There is a very small box that you can move around at the beginning, and there is a small sign telling you to jump by pressing that thing. And you jump over that box, you clear that first hurdle, and then you progress, and then there's a bigger obstacle to that with the same mechanic. You don't have to add more content, you only have to really add new challenges that use that mechanic intelligently. Mm-hmm. And the jumps can get more and more varied. You can make maybe a double jump or maybe a jump that changes the gravity so that you go on the opposite wall or many sorts of things and complications with just a simple jumping that will just keep on adding new different possible levels and puzzles and things to solve, which will keep will definitely keep it interesting. Although will probably not be replayable as a second run of the whole game since it's the same solutions, unless you're a speedrunner, mm-hmm. of course. Yep. And speedrunning, that will probably be way too big to delve <laughs> into for today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think with that, let's wrap things up. And for any developers watching this, if you'd like to come on and talk about replayability in terms of how it applies to your games or just your thoughts on the matter please get in touch with me. Of course, you'll find my information all around Game Wisdom and on the Game Wisdom YouTube channel. But uh, for you, Silvio, if people want to follow you, what are the best ways to do so? There is only one single place. It's the main one. Mm-hmm. Game Dev Seal, my YouTube channel. Right. If you want to see someone else and not feel lonely on this whole journey of game development that you have, then come watch my own content as well. <laughs> All right, great. So, uh, so it was great hanging out with you my Saturday afternoon. I know it's Saturday evening by your time. And best of luck with your channel and your path through game development. Same to you. Great. Awesome. All right. So with that said, we'll wrap things up for this uh, short and sweet podcast this week. I'd like to thank you for listening to it. With that said, if you'd like to support Game Wisdom and what I do, we of course have several options available. If you'd like to write a guest piece for the site or be a future guest for either a live or recorded cast, you can find I'm sorry, information and links under Submissions Wanted on the front page or just shoot me an email, josh at game-wisdom.com. You can follow me on Twitter at GWBicer for my thoughts throughout the day and updates. And be sure to check out the Game Wisdom YouTube channel for daily videos covering game design, developer live casts, and more. And last but not least, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash GWBicer. Your donations can help to keep things going, and we can hit some goals. It will mean more content for everyone to enjoy. And if you'd like to join our Discord channel, the basic tier is now open. You'll find a link to it on the About page on Game Wisdom, as well as on the Patreon site. So, that's it for me for this week. Have a great rest of the week, folks, and I will catch you all next time with another discussion about the art and craft of game design.